This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Vader, our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our focus, contemporary spirituality. Our guest today, Shinzen Young. Shinzen is an American mindfulness teacher and a neuroscience research consultant. He has an amazing background, which we'll get into in the interview. And I also want to mention his latest book, The Science of Enlightenment, How Meditation Works. Uh, Shinzen, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. My pleasure. Uh, Shinzen, let's fill people in uh, on your background. You were uh, you're from Los Angeles and uh, were not born into a Buddhist family. You are, in fact, one of the original Jubus. And, <laughs> that uh, is right. A pioneer Jubu. <laughs> I, I can hold my head high, yes. Uh, so tell us uh, what brought you to uh, your studies of Buddhism and your uh, interest in it in the first place. Well, as you mentioned, I was born in Los Angeles. And I was born into actually a very different world. Um, I was born in the last year of World War II. Uh, my dad was off fighting the Japanese when I was born. Um, and I grew up in Los Angeles in the Eisenhower era in the 1950s. So North America was uh, really a very different culture at that time. Um, essentially, there was no cultural diversity, and the notion that anything from Asia would have any relevance to anything we did here was just not on anyone's radar. So I've been privileged to see this incredible transition in my lifetime. Um, I was... Uh, in middle school, we used to call it junior high, when I first got turned on to Asian culture. So as you mentioned, my parents uh, are Jewish uh, culturally, and I went to uh, Hebrew school and, uh, you know, uh, went, we attended synagogue and so forth. But when I was 14 years old, so a year after my bar mitzvah, uh, I saw a Japanese movie. Uh, Japanese movies were not common. Uh, people were not interested in that kind of thing. But my best friend in uh, junior high was a third generation Japanese American, what's called Sansei. Mm. And his family used to go see Japanese movies. So I went with them one Friday night. There was only one theater in Los Angeles that showed Japanese movies. And they only showed it once, once a week. Mm. <laughs> so I went with them, and it was a double feature. The first was a love story set in modern Tokyo, and I was completely bored and uninterested. And the second was a samurai movie, <laughs> a martial arts movie set in 17th century Japan. Kurosawa? No, it was nothing of that quality. Uh -huh. um, you know how we talk about there's A movies, B movies, C yeah. movies. So this would have been a C movie. It was just a very run-of-the-mill, just like a Western would be a shoot-em-up if it was a B or C Western. Well, you might call this the Japanese version, which would be a hack-em-up. So this was not 
Um, this was not the high art of Kurosawa um, or the others. It was just a very run-of-the-mill thing, but it mesmerized me. I mean, this was... I remember thinking, obviously these people are humans, but they might as well be from another planet. Everything about them is different from the world I know. The way they talk, the way they move, their attitudes, the way they fight, what they eat, the way they comb their hair. It's like, holy crap, this, these are humans of a, such a different variety. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just fascinated. So after the movie was over, um, I pummeled my f- friend's parents with questions like, um, you know, I mean, there was a scene in this movie where uh, these two samurai are fighting and the other one gets, one gets the better of the other one and is grabbing him by the hair. And he says, you're a samurai, you know what to do. These movies had subtitles, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know Japanese. So that's all he says. You're a samurai, you know what to do. And the next thing is the guy that's on the bottom that was defeated takes out a a, a, a short sword and rips open his belly just like that, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, you lost, you know what to do. <laughs> it's like, holy crap! What, what's that all about? <laughs> I couldn't imagine, you know, such a different world. So, I got fascinated with Japan, and I found out that in Los Angeles, just like there's Hebrew school for Jewish kids, there's Japanese school for Japanese-American kids. It meets uh, in the afternoons after American public school is over or on Saturdays. So I had this epiphany. If I really want to learn about this culture, the secret is going to be I have to learn the language. I have to completely master uh, to speak, read, and write the Japanese language. Now, at that time, there was only one book in English that was a Japanese grammar. Uh, It's not like now where you can just go on the internet and these incredible resources. It was very esoteric. So what happened is I started to go to Japanese school and I was privileged to grow up bilingual and bicultural. So by the time I graduated from high school and went into college, I actually was close to native in Japanese. Um, Shenzhen, so could, that's how it started. Yeah. If wow. I could interrupt you for a second, I want to ask, uh, during that period of time, I mean, obviously you, you, you made a big commitment, you're going to learn the language, your own cultural <clears> background is very different. Did you uh, start feeling like you were Japanese? Did you make that uh, a transition where you felt culturally you you went from one tradition to another and you were so immersed uh, that you actually felt Japanese. And my other question was, the students that you were in Japanese school with, who were, uh, you know, whose ancestors came from Japan, whose parents probably came from Japan, did they accept you or did they see you as an outsider? I was completely accepted. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, at Venice High, which was the American public school I attended in Venice, uh, near Venice, California. We know where that is. Um, yeah. I, I, can, yeah. I can walk there. It's about four blocks from where I am right now. 
Oh, you can walk to the high school or yeah. Venice yeah. Beach. Oh, okay. So you you yeah. know exactly where Either. that is. Yeah. Cool. <clears throat> well, I went the gondoliers. Uh, you got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, the gondoliers. That's exactly what we were. So um, I was a nerdy nobody at Venice High um, because I was a weirdo and a, an outcast because of my weird interests. But at Sautel Japanese Language Institute, uh, the, the week I graduated from Venice High as a nerdy nobody, I graduated from Sautel Japanese Language School, and I was the class valedictorian. Wow. wow. They wanted wow. to show off the... Um, the unusual fact of a uh, someone uh, uh, not Japanese ancestry who could give uh, a public talk in impeccable Japanese. Wow! So I was I was totally accepted, and I've always um, been accepted by every culture that I got interested in because Japan was just the beginning. Then it, after that, my parents got me a Mandarin Chinese tutor, and after that, my parents got me a Sanskrit tutor for Indian culture. So wow. this set off a whole train of cultural adventures that have been sort of a, one of the key features of my life. But mm-hmm. in any event, to answer your first question, not yet. Um, that happened when I lived in Japan mm. for the first time. So after I graduated, I went to UCLA. Not surprisingly, I was an Asian language major <laughs> as an undergraduate at UCLA. And that led to me having my senior, senior year abroad in Japan. And unlike most gaijin, which is the word for foreigner in Japanese, unlike most gaijin, at that time, I actually could speak, read, and write Japanese. Yeah. Now it's not unusual. I mean, not unusual at all. There's lots and lots of uh, people from all over the world that are quite good in Japanese. But back in the early 60s, it was very rare. So every door opened to me. Um, and yes, after I had lived in Japan, I started to, I was on a path. Um, I was, if I had stayed in Japan, I would have become a light-skinned, big-nosed Japanese person. Hmm. I I was on that vector. But um, what happened was, because of the cultural interests, when I was in Japan, I started to do the tea ceremony, and then that led to living in a Buddhist temple, Mm. and then that led eventually to learning how to meditate. And that led to a kind of transcendence of culture, Mm. because if if the culture of Asia was a mountain, uh, I found at the peak of that mountain the technology of meditation. And that technology was something of universal value. Mm-hmm. It's something for the whole world. It's something Asia did better than anyone. Um, and uh, once I had sort of come, ascended the peak of the mountain called Asia, um, I pretty much lost that passion for Asian culture, mm. because I had discovered something more important, something, mm-hmm. yes, that was born in Asia, but mm-hmm. is of universal, universal importance to the whole yeah. world, which is yeah. meditation. Yeah. 
Okay. So I sort of climbed the mountain of Asia, and because I found meditation, I was drawn to return to the West. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't go down that course of right. becoming a Japanese. How mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, you parallel so many people um, that both of Dennis and I know. In fact, I was born the last year of the war, and my father... Well, he was in the brig having gone AWOL instead of (laughs) 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 unlike your father. But um, um, (laughs) but I I, I was a little older than you when I saw Satyajit Ray's movies, and the same thing happened to me about India that drew you to Japan, something in a similar way. But, you know, we were part of a certain generational thing. But let me ask you this. You were in Japan. So I'm assuming the form of meditation you uh, first uh, encountered was Zen, or Zazen. Um, Maybe you can uh, explain to our listeners a couple of uh, distinctions in um, what we think of as as Buddhism, um, such as the difference between uh, Zen and of the Pasana forms of meditation. Can, can sure. Yeah. Um, actually, um, strictly speaking, the first meditation that I did in Japan was not Zen. Uh-huh. It was actually uh, the Japanese version of Vajrayana practice. Uh-huh. Um, there's something called Shingon, which is similar in many ways, although also different from the practices of Tibet. Um, Not that it came from Tibet, but both Tibetan Buddhist practice and uh, Shingon practice in Japan uh, have a common origin in late Buddhism in India. Mm. Um, So I actually more or less reversed Buddhist history Mm. in the sense that my first practice was Vajrayana, which is historically the latest thing to develop in Buddhism in India. And then I got involved in Zen, which is a, uh, an East Asian form of Mahayana. Mm-hmm. And Mahayana historically preceded Vajrayana. And then I went from that to an interest in um, Vipassana or mindfulness, which reflects the earliest period. Mm-hmm. Some people call it Hinayana or small mm-hmm. vehicle. Mm-hmm. So my own sort of spiritual journey uh, covered all of Buddhism, uh, but in reverse order, (laughs) historically. Mm. So to give a very quick uh, view of the practices, the mindfulness or vipassana is the characteristic practice uh, preserved in Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia preserves a form of Buddhism similar to early Buddhism, and that's sometimes called Theravada or Hinayana or small vehicle, if you want to use that term. So that's historically the earliest practice from India, and it's in Southeast Asia. Then the Hinayana or small vehicle evolved into something called Mahayana in India, And that went into China and sort of merged with Taoism and Confucianism and turned into something called Chan or Zen. So Zen is Indian Mahayana crossbred with um, the Chinese traditions of uh, Confucianism and Taoism. Mm. 
So it's mm-hmm. historically a form of Mahayana, or great vehicle. Maha means big, and Yana is a vehicle. Then in India, Mahayana evolved into something called Vajrayana, or the diamond vehicle, and that spread into everywhere uh, in Buddhist Asia, but it's only been strongly preserved in two places. Vajrayana is preserved in Tibet, where it dominates the practice, and it's also preserved in um, Japan as Shingon. So... That's what I meant when I said I reversed Buddhist history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, I can briefly characterize what those practices are, but before I would do that, I would say, more broadly speaking, all Buddhist practice um, is part of a larger picture, which we might call the worldwide tradition of contemplative-based mm-hmm. psycho-spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. So I tend to see all of the three Buddhist practices as within the larger context of world meditation and world mysticism. And that's reflected in my book, uh, The Science of Enlightenment. I talk about Christian and Jewish and Islamic, uh, and of course, uh, yogic, Hindu, um, and so forth. I I see these as all related. Mm -hmm. And so the underlying theme as I see it is that uh, contemplative practices around the world, East, West, prehistoric or post-Neolithic, all contemplative practices uh, have a common denominator. They all involve the development of states of high concentration. Now, in addition to that, um, many contemplative practices have uh, a notion of what might be called equanimity or detachment, not fighting with your sensory experience. So we can think of concentration as the ability to focus on what you deem relevant at a given moment. We can think of equanimity as the ability to let pleasant and unpleasant sensory experiences expand and contract in our awareness without interfering or pushing and pulling. Uh, And then certain um, contemplative traditions also talk about sensory clarity, which is the ability to untangle the strands of sensory experience. So you can look at these three core skills, concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity, and you can see how they're spoken about in different ways in the different traditions and how they're cultivated in different Mm -hmm. ways. Um, So it becomes a framework, uh, and once again, this is something that is sort of the central theme of my book, The Science of Enlightenment. We can use this framework to analyze all of the world's uh, spiritual traditions. So we could go through, to answer your original question, I can say how concentration, clarity, and equanimity are developed in the mindfulness practice, how they're developed in Zen, how they're developed in Vajrayana. But the point is that although the way that they're developed is different and how they're spoken of differs somewhat, those core skills are always there. And the result is always essentially the same. Um, The result has two dimensions. One dimension is 
liberation from the mind and body. Mm-hmm. So freedom from the limited identity. Um, that sort of could be described as transcending the self, small self, transcend the small self. And the second dimension is improving the small self, refining mm-hmm. how you carry yourself in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And spiritual maturity comes about when those two dimensions reinforce each other. Right. So, um, Shenzhen, if I, so, if I could interrupt you for a second, because uh, our listeners are of varying degrees of experience in terms of uh, spirituality and, and, and meditation. Some have a lot of experience, a lot have very little experience. You've, uh, you've given us a, an enormous body of, uh, of information that's fascinating. But I also want to make sure that if somebody who's listening in who has little or no experience doesn't think, hey, this is just too overwhelming. There's just so many different traditions and, and, and <laughs> avenues to take, and each one is so uh, specific and, and has so many uh, uh, you know, subcategories and so on and so forth. If somebody comes to you, a simple question, and says, uh, Shinzan, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, by this uh, talk of meditation and mindfulness and all. Where do I start? How do I get involved with this? I'm not an academic. I have no background in this. Uh, I don't have my whole life to dedicate to it, but I want, I want to see if I can medita- benefit from meditation. What would you uh, say to them? Well, I can um, summarize what I would say to them, but I can also tell people where to sort of find that online. I've got a, a, uh, an article I call an outline of practice that um, more or less lays that all out. But if someone comes to me uh, and asks the question that you just asked, um, I ask them a question. I ask them what they would like meditation to do for them. And then based on mm-hmm. what uh, their answer is, I'll explain a few techniques, maybe two or three, uh, that are contrasting. I'll describe to them um, what, um, what the, ben- uh, the payoffs and also the challenges are, and then I would um, let them choose where they would like to start. Mm. So there's an individuation. Uh, That's sh- the way I like to teach. Yeah. yeah. Shinzen, um, you started out in a, a traditional Buddhist context, you now are here in America um, straddling the world of spiritual practice and modern science. Um, in a certain way, that uh, same kind of what we might think of as secularization of these ancient teachings has also occurred in the yogic context and, and mm-hmm. others. Um, do you see any... Uh, downside to the secularization or the democratization is anything lost in the adaptation of these um, teachings from a spiritual context into a secular one? Yeah. Um, Some people use the word secular. Some people use the word mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself would probably use the word modern, (laughs) modern world. Some, Some people say commercial. Uh, well, maybe that. Um, yeah. So this is um, a fairly um, 
involved conversation. I know. So I would say to try to reduce it to um, something uh, relatively compact. Uh, there are two things people worry about uh, in terms of um, these practices sort of going mainstream. One is that the spiritual essence of the original tradition will be lost, and the other is that the um, uh, the moral compass of the original tradition will be lost. Mm-hmm. So, the first, I can only speak for mindfulness. Um, let's just limit our conversation to that. Mm-hmm. So, remember I said that when someone comes to me, I ask them what they want? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, I already know what they want. Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants five basic things. They, when they're uncomfortable, they want relief from physical, emotional, mental discomfort. They also want to be able to experience pleasure with deep fulfillment. That's two things right there. People also want to understand themselves at all levels from the surface psychological to the ultimate deep spiritual. And most people need to make behavior changes in how they carry themselves in the world, stop doing certain things, start doing other things. And ultimately, whether a person realizes it or not, um, they want, we're social beings and we want to be of service to others. Mm. So I analyze um, human happiness into the five dimensions I just said, that I just mentioned. Now, you'll notice that um, included in those dimensions, rather innocuously, are the notion of understanding yourself at all levels, including the deepest, and the notion of making behavior changes that you need to make. So, when a person comes to me, they may say, when they say, when I ask them, what do you want? They may say, uh, I want to improve my tennis game with mindfulness. That's all I'm interested in. Or I have chronic pain um, and I want relief. That's all I'm interested in. Um, I have no trouble starting there. I'll say, okay, here's a couple techniques that um, would work for what you want, would help you. Um, and they're going to build these three core skills, concentration, clarity, equanimity. Um, and we're going to apply them to achieve the goals that you ask for. So I've taught them techniques, and I've taught them about some generic attention skills. And they have a rather limited perspective on what they want to do. That's fine. We start there. However, I'm working interactively with them. And hopefully, they're going to be involved in practice for their whole life. They started with a rather small concept of happiness. Um, I need relief from pain. Well, that's a proper subset of relief from suffering. Or um, uh, I want to improve my tennis game. Well, that's a proper subset of making a behavior change, developing a certain skill. Um, 
So I teach them techniques that develop certain core skills. And we talk about how we can use those techniques and those core skills for what they want, but then I also point out to them that those very same techniques and those very same skills can be used for other things. And it turns out that sooner or later, if you're a skillful teacher, the issue is going to come up that they need to understand themselves at a deeper level or they need to change some character behavior point. Now, they already have the skills and the focus techniques. They've honed those doing what they originally wanted to do, which was a limited notion of happiness. As a teacher, I'm constantly looking and having them talk about their life and looking for the openings where they want to apply those techniques and those skills towards broader dimensions of happiness. And so as the months and years of practice go by, I gradually uh, widen their notion of happiness to include all five dimensions I mentioned mm-hmm. at, at all levels, including the deepest level. So the beauty of the mindfulness way of working is that the same core attentional skill set to wit, concentration, clarity, and equanimity, and the same focus techniques um, like focus in, focus out, focus on rest, note everything. These are some of my standard techniques. These, these techniques can be applied to all aspects of happiness. Um, so I start them where they're at, but I start them in a way that what they learn can be easily and naturally extended. And then sooner or later, it turns out everyone wants to understand themselves at the deepest level, and that brings enlightenment. And everyone knows that there are things that they need to start or stop in terms of their ethics and character. And the same techniques that we use to uh, improve your tennis game we can use to improve your um, ethics game Mm -hmm. and the same skills. So it's just a matter of of the teacher understanding um, how to broaden the student's concept of happiness. So it doesn't matter if they start with something very secular or even self-centered, as long as the teacher knows how to uh, uh, broaden their concept of happiness so that within a few years they are actually attaining enlightenment and becoming admirable people broadly in terms of how they carry themselves in the world. In the Buddhist tradition, that's called upaya, Mm. or skillful approach. Very good. Uh, Chuzen, thank you. That was a beautiful uh, 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 description of how a teacher takes somebody from small thinking to big thinking. And I, I remember when Phil and I first got involved in meditation, there was a story of uh, a person coming to learn meditation so they could uh, sleep better. And uh, then they moved on from that, that goal to uh, wanting to be fully enlightened. Uh, one, one last question. We have a couple of minutes left. 
and that is that... Uh, uh, let me it, just put one little codicil yeah, on yeah. what I said. So the, the soundbite answer to your question for people worried about um, the watering down of these traditions, the, the answer is not to wring your hands and, and, and fetch, if you know what that word means, uh, like I complain means. Yeah, about yeah. these things, yeah. right? It, it's not fetching or getting angry at people or whatever. The, the, the fix is you train the teachers mm-hmm. in the skill of extending the notion of happiness. And there's a systematic way to do that. And then we can start wherever people want to start. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I interrupted so, you. Go ahead. No, no. I, I, I just uh, uh, wanted to say that. Oh, the last thing I wanted to ask was if there's uh, uh, on your book, The Science of Enlightenment, uh, I'm sure all of these points that you've been discussing are covered. Anything else you'd like to say about the book? Um, well, if they're not covered in the book, they're covered in a million YouTube segments and free articles that um, uh, I've uh, put on the Internet, so people can find this stuff uh, quite readily. Uh, the book is um, it's a grand vision. People are... Well, thank you for that. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for the uh, titillating metaphor. And <laughs> uh, whoever thought that meditation and science were, were that sexy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, no, it's well appreciated. And thank you for giving us the time. Uh, the listeners, uh, when this is posted, will uh, have access to your website and the uh, links to your book and all that. And um, any uh, quick final shot for our listeners? Um, well, um, I uh, just launched a new program um, where we're training people in my approaches to mindfulness. People might want to check it out. Mm. Um, it's uh, at uh, unifiedmindfulness.com. Mm. That's what I call my approach, Unified Mindfulness, because as you heard, it sort of gives an all-encompassing pers- but very simple paradigm for understanding the whole world of a worldwide uh, contemplation. So unifiedmindfulness.com has a very uh, readily accessible online training program, both in my techniques and in how to teach my techniques. That interactive way that I talked about, how how you go from a little concept of happy to a really big and deep concept of happy. Well, um, one of my senior facilitators, Juliana Ray, uh, created this wonderful um, online program uh, with, that ends with a certification. So people m- might want to check out the unifiedmindfulness.com website also. Very we can, we, you can put that uh, with the links. Okay, right. That'll we will. all be posted up. Shenzhen, thank, thank you, you so Shenzhen. very much. And uh, we'll have to have you back on because uh, I think there's uh, much, much more material we could and should be covering. And again, the, the name of uh, the book, The Science... Uh, of enlightenment, how meditation works. Thank Take you, so, thank you much. so much. It was my pleasure. Keep up the great work. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye.